Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, September 7th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we're going to discuss the role of faith in a successful insurgency movement or community I see all three all three as being basically the same they should be the same you can't have an insurgency without a intellectual and physical movement behind it and you can't have a movement unless you have a community of like-minded individuals who produce it. This presentation was inspired by Jim O'Brien who made mention of this subject and of myself in relation to this subject in his speech at the National Conference for the League of the South in Wetumpka, Alabama this past June. Recently Dr. Michael Hill, the president of the League of the South, wrote on social media that in all successful movements there is a vanguard both intellectual and physical that must push hard against the established order by violating their taboos and sacred cows sometimes shockingly to show the people that oftentimes audacity is the first ingredient for success we will continue to be audacious and aggressive in our actions in real life and on the internet early Christians certainly had the audacity of which Michael Hill had spoken by refusing to make sacrifices worshiping Caesar by refusing to pay homage to the idols of Rome and by voluntarily going so far as death for their convictions an act of defiance which in itself showed the world how much they despised the established order of their own time standing together with Christ they overcame the world and the world their European world ultimately became Christian. As a result, it also became a much better place. Of course, Dr. Hill was speaking on behalf of the League of the South when he wrote those words. And I agree with him. I would agree even if I were not a member of the League. But here I must make a disclaimer. Even though I am a member, I am only a member, and therefore I cannot speak for the League of the South, or for any other organization. Whenever I speak at Christagenia, it is only on my own behalf. So except for that one short quotation, the words, the words which I present here tonight are my own and they reflect my own opinions based upon my own studies and observations from both 
history and the current situation of our white kindred people in general. Neither can I impose my own will and ideas on the League or upon any of its members. So, of course, my actions within the League will remain in compliance with its own directives and constitution. My only hope is that these words come to be understood by other members of the League of the South and also by all of our white and nationalist kindred in every region and eventually adopted to the greatest degree possible because I sincerely believe that as a race we have no other alternative that will ever be successful. If one system of beliefs or faith does not agree with one's experience in reality and the natural instinct for survival. If one's faith does not unify one's own people in a common interest of self-preservation and community edification, then that faith is hostile to one's own well-being and it must be reconsidered. If any specific group, movement, or community of people does not share a common philosophical foundation or religious foundation, it will not survive over the long term. Its members cannot strive harmoniously towards a common objective because moral values, as well as outcome expectations, will never be consistent among all members of the group. The movement will tear itself apart like a body with many heads, all independently trying to control only one set of legs and arms. In the Bible, that is the nature of the beast whereas Christians must acknowledge one head, which is their God, and form themselves into one body with a common mind if they are to survive. It should be readily apparent to anyone who has studied history that none of the modern mainstream church denominations and none of the varieties of paganism can fulfill the needs of a cohesive and racially oriented movement. Furthermore, it is my opinion, and I know that this may even upset many men at the highest levels of organizations such as the League of the South, that any nationalist who participates in any modern organized church denomination is cucking to one degree or another, whether he will acknowledge it or not. Anyone who belongs to a church which is granted IRS 501c3 status is acting as a cuck because every single one of those churches has forsaken its duty to God and nation in favor of government tax exemptions and popular acceptance. In the South especially, there may be some 
rural Baptist or primitive Baptist churches that are tolerable and more traditional. But in the end, even they will cave into popular pressure and government regulation once they are compelled to do so. Unless they are identity-minded and willing to lose their tax-exempt status, they cannot be trusted. If they are sending a portion of their tithes to any national or international organization, rather than keeping their money within their own white community, they cannot be trusted. If they are willing to ignore any aspect of Christian scripture so as not to offend the government or the wider worldly community, then they cannot be trusted. Does your church have an IRS 501c3 tax exemption? Then it serves government interests and not your interests. Is your church a member of the National Council of Churches or the Southern Baptist Convention or any other such group? Is it an ecumenical church seeking harmony with Muslims and Jews? Does it conduct or donate money to foreign missions or imperial causes? Does it accept alien outsiders of other races and attempt to integrate them into your community? Is it a Catholic or Orthodox Church holding allegiance to a foreign patriarch or potentate? Then it serves worldly and alien interests and not your interests. Stop cucking yourself. Quit your church and form your own local nationalist church. Those are the churches that Paul of Tarsus left behind when he was executed by Nero. Reading Romans chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Colossians chapter 4, Philemon verse 2. It is evident that Paul wrote his epistles to the churches which were in certain people's houses not necessarily to people in churches. Originally, the church was not an organization with a presence in the community. Rather, like-minded Christians separated themselves from the wider pagan world and organized their own communities, which were then called churches. Apostolic Christianity organized like-minded and kindred peoples into self-governing communities which strove to function independently of the government of the empire to the greatest extent possible. Early Christians understood that the empire and all of its agents were corrupt and that they were going to be punished by God. Christ promised his followers that if they separated themselves loved one another and kept his commandments that they would survive that punishment. We are Christians today because those early Christians did survive.
although modern so-called Christian institutions have now whored themselves off to become agents of a new empire. Christians were warned of this in Revelation chapter 17, where we also see that they too shall suffer the same punishment. The world of the apostles was limited to the Roman world, the white world of the Mediterranean basin and Europe. The second chapter of the Gospel of Luke and similar New Testament scriptures help to establish that, and it can certainly be proven throughout scripture. This is why the apostles went to Europe, or to lands occupied and ruled over by European peoples. And the people and society of ancient Europe itself had its origins in the Near and Middle East. Contrary to popular opinion, there is no compulsion for the Gospel of Christ to be shared with the alien races which existed outside of and apart from the world of the Apostles. Before the Muslim invasions of Europe and the Near and Middle East, the world of the Apostles was predominantly white where now much of it is brown. The Jews were also engaged in population replacement in ancient times. Consciously or not, even Martin Luther exhibited this same general racial consciousness where he wrote in chapter 13 of his treatise on the Jews and their lies that it is a great, extraordinary, and wonderful thing that the Gentiles in all the world accepted without sword or coercion with no temporal benefits accruing to them gladly and freely a poor man of the Judeans as the true Messiah one whom his own people had crucified, condemned, cursed, persecuted without end. Now, unfortunately, Luther did not quite understand the racial division in ancient Judea and why Jesus was not a Jew as we know the Jews. But in making that statement, Luther was not including Jews and he was not including the other races such as the Muslim Turks and others whom he also mentioned elsewhere in that same essay, since he did not consider them to be a part of his world. Saying, the Gentiles in all the world, Luther was writing in reference to the European world. At that time, there were no true Christian nations anywhere else. Neither should we have ever considered the non-white races as a part of our world. At Luther's time, there were virtually no Christian nations outside of Europe, and until that time, nobody was trying to convert the other races to Christianity, except for the Roman Catholics, whom Luther had utterly despised. In Luther's time, the Roman Catholics were only recently engaged in that endeavor, 
mostly under the direction of the Jesuits, the Spanish Empire, and the Portuguese in South America. While race was not even an issue among Christians before the advent of the European colonial period, it slowly became an issue once aliens began to acquire the status of people. More recently, it is a greater issue only for the reason that during these last several decades, those aliens had been allowed to freely dwell among white Christians in significant numbers. The Catholics had corrupted Christianity and spread it to the aliens as a civilizing influence, and all the Protestant sects have followed along. This has perverted Christianity into an imperialist dogma. But the belief that Christianity was the exclusive religion of white men was also the prevailing perspective in the Old South. In the early 19th century, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Missouri, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia all had laws which prevented blacks or slaves from learning to read and write to read and write, and which punished anyone who held schools for them. Even the Yankee state of Connecticut at one time had such a law on the books. During those same years, the Christian Bible was the primary textbook for school children, and the book from which white children everywhere in America had learned how to read and write. The Bible was often the only book that many families even owned. So in those early years, most white men did not want to transmit white culture and religion to blacks, and wisely so. To humanize the Negro is the first step down the slippery slope of miscegenation and the destruction of one's own society. If we are to be successful in the defense of our own people, the non-white races must be completely dehumanized. Our scriptures dehumanize them for us once we understand the scriptures properly. And again, we must do so without the Jewish filter through which we have been taught to read them. Even Henry Ford understood that. We will never overcome our enemies unless we dehumanize them. All non-whites must be seen as devils and subhumans, or we will forever be plagued with Jewish egalitarianism and misplaced empathy. The denominational churches have all been infiltrated and subverted and are now the biggest tool against our race after the federal government and the media. It is only recently that they humanize non-whites. In Europe, up until as recently as the 1950s, especially in France, African blacks were exhibited as attractions in zoos and at fairs. 
This was a rather common occurrence throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. Dehumanizing non-whites is not as radical a concept as it seems, because it is only relatively recently in history that non-whites were universally recognized as equal humans to whites. Thank the Freemasonic Lodges in the French Revolution for that. Rudyard Kipling, the poet laureate of Her Majesty's England, reflected this in his 1899 poem, The White Man's Burden, where after the Spanish-American War, he referred to the races of those alien lands which America had won from the Spanish as your new-caught sullen peoples half devil and half child. Kipling was also a Christian. Kipling certainly knew that the brown races could not be humanized and regarded as equals to whites. In that same poem, he also warned rather prophetically that white men would become servants to their own captives and that they would suffer blame and hatred in return from those same races. In response, Mark Twain, a southerner turned Yankee liberal, who labored in his writings to humanize the Negro, had despised and criticized Kipling. Twain whined, that the white man's burden has been sung. Who will sing the brown man's? Twain was married to a wealthy liberal abolitionist from New York, and his writing reflected her attitudes disguised in a southern setting. Those writings were nevertheless employed by the enemies of southern culture, to impress their agenda on unsuspecting generations of white Christian youth. Ever since the war against the South, the division amongst whites in their attitudes toward the non-white races has been exploited by our enemies in their age-old age old endeavor to destroy Christendom. As Kipling was being criticized by Twain, many American clergymen of that time had also speculated as to how the Negro could possibly be in the image of God, and many would never have baptized a Negro. For example, in 1900, a book was published under the title, The Negro, a beast or in the image of God, written by Professor Charles Carroll. Interestingly, and I will link a PDF copy of that book here this evening. Interestingly, the book was first published in St. Louis, Missouri, the same state in which Samuel Clemens was born, Mark Twain. At one time, Christian writers had accepted a lie 
which was contrived by the rabbis in Spain and Portugal, who claimed that a so-called curse of Ham, a curse which is not found in Scripture, was the reason for the existence of Negroes. Professor Carroll properly rejected that fallacy and correctly concluded that the Negro was a beast and not a man, much like the founders of our American Republic, when it was a republic, did not count Negroes as men. One of the negative effects of humanizing the Negro is discussed at the end of the book, where we read of the natural results of amalgamation brought about by treating the Negro as a human being. Humanizing the Negro certainly is an error which is which inevitably and unavoidably leads to our own destruction. Of course, we do not need Carroll to establish the facts, but only mention him here, because the book reflects, just like Kipling's poem, the book reflects the theological debate of the times. Therefore, the modern position which our general society has towards Negroes is aberrant to traditional Christianity and especially to the Christianity of the Old South. Even the pagan Greek writers who lived around the time of the lives of Christ and the Apostles knew that Negroes were little but beasts. Diodorus Siculus, who wrote a rather extensive history of the ancient world up to his own time, was one such writer. After describing the cultured people of Ethiopia, who were originally not black, and who had many things in common with the rest of the civilized world, Diodorus says in Book 3, in Chapter 8 of his Library of History, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians. Tribe being a genetic designation and Ethiopian here being a geographical one. Some of them dwelling in a land lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river. Others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia and still others residing in the interior of Libya. The Greeks considered Egypt, for the most part, to be the Nile River Basin, everything east of it to be Arabia, and everything west of it to be Libya. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. Not so much, however, in their temper as in their ways of living, for they are squalid all over their bodies. They keep their nails very long, like the wild beasts, and are as far removed as possible 
from human kindness to one another. The word human actually comes from a Latin word which means kindness. And speaking as they do with a shrill voice and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life as these which are found among the rest of mankind, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. Paul of Tarsus must have known of these beasts, but he never ventured to evangelize them. Neither did any other Christian in the Near East or in Europe, until after the converso Jews and humanist reasoning corrupted Christian understanding of the scriptures in the late Middle Ages. The former white Christians of Ethiopia and Egypt turned black, gradually miscegenating, without the help of the Roman Church. But what Diodorus described in his day sounds exactly like what is seen today in the streets of Atlanta, New Orleans, Memphis, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, and most other American cities on a regular basis. Ultimately, Christianity cannot help the Negro because Christianity is not for the Negro. Without the rule of law imposed by the ruling white society, the Negro, all Negroes, quickly revert to their former status and the level of Diodorus's savages. Do not protest with the contention that people of other races can be good Christians. That is not at all true. Europeans had one wave of missionaries from Palestine spanning one generation. Negroes in Africa have had 500 years of missionaries from Europe and they still cannot perpetuate their faith and build any form of self-sustaining and lasting society. Negroes who came north, who came to the northern states of the American Empire in the 1950s and 60s, came north as Christians, claiming to be Christians, claiming to be Baptists or Methodists. And in two cities, in I'm sorry, and in two decades, they had destroyed all the cities of the north, even though they were granted free money in the biggest welfare state known to man. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, even though Negroes flocked to the cities that not only had the most jobs, but the highest welfare payments, they destroyed those cities in two decades. And they were already supposedly Christians. 
In a February 2016 article at Christagenia titled The Christian Identity Objective, I wrote that the Negro takes the image of Christ, remodels it in his own image, and destroy everything it touches in his name. The Oriental takes up the image of Christ and adds it to his collection of mystical talismans, imagining that it is just one more tool in the arsenal of idols that will help him to gratify his lusts along with shark fins and tiger penises. The Mexican takes up the image of Christ, but only as a child, and then worships the young virgin instead, yearning for the fulfillment of its own beastly impulses. None of these other races can truly worship and follow the Christ of our scriptures. Going back to the year 1900, Charles Carroll was not alone. Other churchmen and academics, such as University of Michigan professor Alexander Winchell in his 1888 book Pre-Adamites, sought to understand the existence of these other races apart from the Adam of the Bible who historically represents only the white race. The word Adam means to be ruddy. The Table of Nations in Genesis chapter 10, all of which were originally white, is indeed a historical construction. Eventually, all of the Christian churches in America relented to political correctness and sided with those who openly opposed Professor Carroll. However, we would agree more closely with Professor Carroll and assert that all non-white races are beasts, as Carroll also offered the theory that all other non-white races were a result of mixing the Negro with various beasts. My own study of scripture leads me to some agreement with this. But to make a further conclusion, all non-whites are a result of the ancient corruption of God's creation. And they, in their present form, were not created by our God. So they may be beasts, but they are not the beasts of creation and the Negro is also a corruption of that original creation. This I can establish with scripture. However, it requires a lengthy explanation to make a complete exhibition of the proofs. But without those proofs, from plain observation of our current situation, all nationalists and especially Southern nationalists must ask themselves whether or not it is in their best interests to continue to attend and support these denominational churches, churches which expend their resources for the benefit of the other and non-white races. Another Christian nationalist, Adolf Hitler, wondered this same thing.
In Volume 2, Chapter 2 of Mein Kampf, he criticized the organized churches of Germany, which, and I quote <coughs> from the Murphy translation, tried to convert the Hottentots and the Zulus and the Kathirs and to bestow on them the blessings of the church, while our European people, God be praised and thanked, are left to become the victims of moral depravity. The pious missionary goes out to Central Africa and establishes missionary stations for Negroes. Finally, sound and healthy, though primitive and backward, people will be transformed under the name of our higher civilization into a motley of lazy and brutalized mongrels. It would better accord with noble human aspirations if our two Christian denominations, meaning the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic, would cease to bother the Negroes with their preaching, which the Negroes do not want and do not understand. Negro church is basically a chest-beating ritual and a dance fest. Now those same denominations are flooding Germany with the Hottentots, Zulus, and Kathirs that they could never civilize in Africa, and all of Germany is in a state of moral depravity. Once the empire had the victory, Germany suffers from the same brutal reconstruction which was imposed on the Old South. In American history, the idea of organized churches as members of a national system is a relatively new idea. It is an imitation of the Anglican system, which is an imitation of the Roman Catholic system. But instead of kings and popes, there are councils and boards of directors. These are the systems of foreign control from which the American revolutionaries of the 18th century had declared independence. These systems have allowed our enemies to control church doctrine in spite of what we can read for ourselves in the Bibles. Foreign control of one's religion is the same as foreign control of one's world view and one's destiny. So long as the church which one attends has an interest in non-white aliens, by attending, one, by attending that church, one also puts his own interest in those aliens and one is a traitor to his own race, playing cuckold for the enemies of Christ. But now one may ask, why should we embrace Christianity at all? I can spend hours and even days discussing this topic. In brief, Christianity is the religion of our ancestors, some for a thousand years, and some for nearly two thousand years, depending on what part of Europe they were from. 
the aliens were only forced into Christianity, first in Latin America and then elsewhere, for perhaps the last 600 years, and mostly because the Catholic Church sought control. It is demonstrable that Christianity was accepted in parts of Greece, Rome, and Britain in the first century. It was accepted in the Iberian Peninsula and Gaul in the second century. It was accepted by a large portion of the Goths and Alans by the third century. Writing in the early eighth century, the English monk Bede, B-E-D-E, Bede described an independent Christian church in Ireland and Scotland, which was much older than any Roman Catholic presence in the British Isles. Bede also described the voluntary acceptance of Christianity by the British king Lucius, or Lucius, circa 156 A.D., whereby the Britons, he said, then receiving the faith, kept it sound. The Roman Catholics had only sent missionaries to convert the Anglo-Saxons, and Bede was one such Saxon. But the other tribes in Britain had already long been Christian. Despite the complaints of pagans, very few Europeans, as Martin Luther also attested, were forced to accept Christianity. Those that were forced had it imposed on them out of necessity of the surrounding Germanic tribes who were tired of being robbed and pillaged. In a recent presentation titled Christian Identity, What Difference Does It Make? I said the following. Should we really think that our ancestors were too dumb to know what was going on in the world up to their own time? Should we really think that our ancestors were so weak in their own beliefs that they accepted a religion received from sand fleas and niggers? Those who mock or scoff at Christianity are desecrating the graves of 80 generations of their own fathers and mothers. Only a few tribes were ever forcibly converted to Christianity. Among those were the Saxons. When the Islamic hordes invaded France, actually overran Spain and then invaded France, and the Christian ruler Charles Martel raised an army to defeat them, in spite of the churches. He had enemies to his rear. The Saxons were looting and pillaging the towns and villages of the Franks in the east. So for two generations, Charles's sons defended themselves against the Saxons, until Charlemagne finally defeated them and forced them to convert. From that time, the civilizing effect that Christianity had on the converted Saxons then gave birth to one of the world's greatest societies, which we can probably reckon 
from the time of Otto I, the Saxon king, who was born in the year 912. He in turn defended the West against the incursions of the Slavs, and eventually the Slavs were conquered and Christianized by the Saxons for very much the same reason. The pagans in these cases were the aggressors and the Christians were tired of the aggression. We would assert that Christianity was what our ancestors had departed from when they went off into paganism and their return to Christianity was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy that they would eventually return to the true religion of their most ancient ancestors. We certainly can demonstrate that Christianity in its pre-Christian form was indeed the faith of our most ancient ancestors before they followed the devils into paganism. So we said in that same presentation that to mock Christianity today is to mock a hundred generations of our ancestors. People who mock Christianity think that they know something better about our past than their own ancestors, the people who actually lived in those times many centuries ago. The truth is that the people who mock Christianity know little to nothing about the world of the past and the circumstances under which their ancestors ultimately accepted Christianity. If we do not honor our ancestors, what do we in turn expect from our own children? The Christian religion is the reconciliation of our history with immutable moral laws and a call to brotherly love that no other creed has offered. While in its true form it also excludes all of those of different races. It is not even a mere religion. It is a racial covenant with God accompanied by a code of ethics which ensures the sanctity of the family and cooperation between brethren in the wider community. It is the only viable religion by which white men will sustain communities and nations, if and when it is ever really practiced. Many branches of our white race have their own folkish myths and legends and there is nothing wrong with maintaining them. I kind of laugh at the way people sometimes maintain them because as far as I've ever read in ancient history no Scotsman has ever worshipped an Odin or a Thor. <laughs> no Italian has ever worshipped an Odin or a Thor. They had their own gods. They had their own pagan myths, legends, and traditions. But regardless of that, the traditions of the Eddas, such as are found in the Voluspa, recognize an Allfather and a Lord or God of the Dead, who cannot be dead in spirit if they indeed have a God. These are Christian concepts, 
and there are many other overlapping concepts and values expressed in the old literature. But it must also be noted, more, import more importantly, that medieval Christian monks thought it worthy to preserve these works, which would not have otherwise been preserved. The Codex Regius, or in, a, in Icelandic, the Konungsbach, they both mean the same thing, Codex Regius, Book of the King in Latin, in Icelandic, Konungsbach, or King's Book, containing the Icelandic Eddas, the Eddas of Snorri, was once presented by a Christian bishop from Iceland, to King Frederick III of Denmark as a gift in the year 1662. Christian monks also preserved other works such as Beowulf and the Nibelungenlied, which we would not otherwise have today. The same monks must be credited with preserving the pagan and historical literature of ancient Greeks and Romans. In modern times, many divisive interpreters have used the folkish myths to polarize European Christians against elements of their own heritage. And those who question Christianity as they perceive it are in turn hostile to Christians. But this is not a historical divide. Or why would medieval Christians ever have preserved these folkish myths for so many generations? The truth is that many of the pagan so-called religions of today are only reconstructions by modern readers of ancient literature. But they never actually existed in their new forms. There is not enough originally li original literature surviving to get a clear and accurate picture of the daily and religious practices of our ancient ancestors, which also evidently varied from century to century and region to region. A further truth is that the modern churches are not Christian, they are ecumenical agencies upholding the policy of the globalists and their empire. That's all they are. Early Christians did not look for a church to join. Early American pioneers did not wait for a church to come to their settlements. They formed their own churches out of like-minded kindred and they worship God according to their own consciences and what they learned from reading their own Bibles, which was also a principle of 18th century American independence. The entire social life of each individual community, and to a great degree also their political and economic survival, revolved around the small local church. looking for a church to join in these corrupt times. Christians only seek
to conform to the world, where instead true Christians should be reforming a world for themselves. The national religious organizations have systematized deception, something which Paul of Tarsus clearly warned against, and now they accept sodomy, race mixing, and many other evils which our ancestors would never have accepted or even anticipated that their churches would ever entertain. They have actually twisted long-standing and plain interpretations of Scripture in order to coax their assemblies into accepting the modern depravity. But in the first place, the Roman Church never taught Christianity properly. The Roman Church never even followed any of the church fathers whose work it chose to preserve. And there were other early Christian writings whose works it purposely neglected to preserve. From the 4th century, the Roman Church organized its own form of Christianity to fit its own political objectives. And that Christianity is a far cry from the Gospels and the Epistles of the Apostles of Christ. The Protestant churches made some improvements, but they also quickly became corrupted by both governments and the enemies of Christ. The future security of a nation depends upon a proper understanding of its own history and origins, with any alien filters and propaganda removed. This is a necessary foundation for the success of any people. Once that is established, the viability of a movement to preserve that nation and the stability, the stability of an insurgency against alien forces which hold that nation in subjection depend upon a bond of brotherhood and faith which are necessary elements needed to cement all future activity towards the achievement of those goals. Today, with so much of our cultural heritage having been erased by European wars or obliterated by modernism and liberalism, this requires a study of archaeology and the classics as well as our scripture. Modern mainstream religious domination denominations often shun these fields, whereas, or only use them for specific purposes, whereas, until the 19th century, they had closely embraced them. As kindred peoples, the strongest tie which binds us is blood. But as history can prove again and again, only faith can keep us bound. A diversity of faiths has broken white nations, as witnessed in the English Revolution, or the Thirty Years' War which destroyed much of medieval Germany or the constant warfare between 
Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants. So having a common faith is the second most important element being eclipsed only by a common blood which is required to sustain any nationalist insurgency movement or community a people and especially a political and social movement within a larger body of people cannot survive unless its members have a common worldview. Hitler admitted some pagans into his ranks, but they knew better than to openly, publicly speak against Christianity. A movement cannot survive unless its members have a common worldview, which must include common expectations and perceptions about life, a common understanding of the purpose of life, a common origin, and a common knowledge of their origin, as well as a common belief concerning their destiny. For that reason, this worldview must also necessarily include an understanding of the transcendental. Without a transcendental worldview, man may seek to be his own authority, to become his own god, to dominate his fellows, and to impose his own will on his community, which leads to a tyranny where only the most cunning prevail to rule over everyone else. Without a transcendental worldview, man sinks into materialism, where traits such as narcissism and nihilism take root. Then, then men turn to serve their own interests rather than serve the interests of their community. Materialism gives birth to individualism, which in turn leads the society down the path to anarchy, to the same rule of the jungle which governs the beast races. Only with a proper understanding of our God and Creator can we remain above the level of animals so that we could attain to the kingdom of heaven. This understanding brings us to the next necessity, which is an agreement in laws and moral principles. If men desire to live in a harmonious and mutual community and progress towards a common objective, they must agree to abide by a common law. We don't realize this from our modern worldview, but the laws of our God were written on our hearts in ancient times through cultural transmission over many generations. 
In most white cultures, our laws have always been in relative agreement with Christian law for that very reason. Now, in this modern age, the government has become God and lawlessness and perversion abound. If I know that my companions are willing to live and die by those same laws and values in which I am willing to live and die, then I know that I can trust them in my home and with the care of my sons or daughters or even with my wife and I can trust that they will not commit a violation. In an insurgent and nationalist movement where I am fighting for the survival of my own people, if I know that my wife and children will be well treated and cared for if I fall. I will also be much more willing to risk my own life on their behalf. But if my companions are lawless pagans or nihilists who think that it is okay, it is okay to seduce another man's wife or to molest another man's son. How can I cooperate? For what reason should I cooperate? How can I trust someone like that? A community or movement cannot survive without a common foundation of law and that law cannot be made by men. Laws made by men can be changed by men and we slip away into moral relativism. Morals cannot be relative. They must be concrete if we are to ensure our survival as a cohesive community. Relativism is just where the enemies of Christ want us and the Jewish Talmud is the single example, the signal example, of moral relativism. Many years, many years ago I wrote, speaking in an 18th century context, that if man believes that his rights are endowed by the Creator, as the founders of this nation recognized, then man understands that those rights are inalienable. If man believes that his morals are passed down from God, as the founders of this nation also recognized, then man understands that those morals are immutable. Yet, in recent times, man has allowed the Jew to litigate God out of modern society. And therefore, today we have no rights and no morals. Of course, the principles upon which that nation was founded had been forgotten by the middle of the 19th century and for a variety of reasons. It was a very different government which executed the war against the Confederacy than that which was formed after the American Revolution. But as our scriptures explain, we truly only have liberty in Christ. 
once a large enough portion of us wander off and worship strange gods. Tyranny is the inevitable result. This is what has happened to modern Christendom. It began worshiping the idols and entertainments of the Jews. So now the Jews have come to rule society. We need to put away all forms of idolatry and vice. I have also contended that no amount of erudition or elocution can pull someone out of a religion that makes them feel good and approves of their vices. Modern denominations have gradually become more and more tolerant of every sort of deviancy. Those who accept vice are every bit as guilty as those who commit it, as Paul of Tarsus had explained in Romans chapter 1. Vice destroys us. It destroys our families, and we cannot accept it at any level. This means giving up pornography, licentiousness, drunkenness, remaining chaste to one's own wife, not coveting thy neighbor's goods. We must sacrifice the satisfaction of our own lusts for the sake of our community. The Hebrew Bible is a book of the white race, once it is properly understood, and once the various perspectives are put in order. It is consistent with all of the earliest myths of the white nations of antiquity. I can and have discussed all of this at great length in hundreds of podcasts, with hundreds of biblical, historical, archaeological, and literary citations. The biggest lie in the world is that the Bible is a Jewish book. In truth, from cover to cover, it is absolutely anti-Jewish, except for one false book, Esther, which never belonged in the Bible. And that discussion is also outside of the scope of our purpose here. The Adamic man is a white man. The very name means to be ruddy. And as it says in Genesis chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. There is a table of nations from, descended from Noah in Genesis chapter 10. And it is demonstrable beyond doubt from ancient history and archaeology that every one of those nations was originally white. For the most part, unless they are viewed as invaders or intruders, the other races are outside of the biblical narrative, and they should never be included in any biblical perspective wherein there is a positive outlook. It would take me many lectures to prove all of this, but I have already done that and they are all available at Christogenia. The wisdom of Solomon in our scriptures informs us that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Originally, only our white Adamic race is considered in the use of the word for man. That immortality of the Adamic race, of the white race, is also the promise of the gospel of Christ. The ancient Celtic warriors who fought against Rome were descendants of the people of the Bible, 
This too can be proven through a study of ancient history. They also believed that they were invincible, that their spirits were eternal, and could not be destroyed even if their bodies were destroyed. These were our ancestors. This is actually the true Christian belief and the original belief of our Adamic race. In various forms, it is found in the Eddas. It is found in the Greek epic poets, in the ancient Akkadian and Babylonian inscriptions, and in ancient Egyptian writings. It is also found in the Hebrew Bible. It is also what Christ actually teaches in the Gospel, and what Paul taught in his epistles. It is what David taught in the Psalms, and it is what Moses taught in Genesis. There was only one race of man created by God, and that race is eternal. Its members cannot be destroyed. They will be judged by their creator on the basis of how they love their brethren in this life and what they did with whatever gifts and resources they were granted by that creator. All other races are corruptions of God's original creation. We alone have a promise that if we keep his law and we love one another, we will not become corrupted in that same manner. This is also evident throughout the writings of the apostles. Once all of this is understood, we are equipped with a knowledge and a faith that makes us both fearless and selfless. We learn to follow the example of Christ and selflessly devote ourselves to the good of our own kindred. We forsake temporal blessings in order to pursue eternal blessings. The ultimate objective of man should be self-sacrifice on behalf of his own people to advance their cause and to edify their community. We can do that in life or if we must we can do that in death. That is the essence of Christianity. Adolf Hitler also recognized that and he made it the core principle of National Socialism. Our primitive churches also understood that but through their national councils they are now directed to looking after zoo animals while they have neglected their own people. We must also understand and this is the hard pill for most of us to swallow we must also understand that truth is not a democracy. Throughout our early history truth was empirical and the lower classes of the people were told what to believe by their tribal leaders. It was the responsibility of the princes to study and to be educated so that they could make the best decisions in the interests of their people. Not every opinion is valid 
and most people have not done the studying sufficient to even merit formulating an opinion. The princes relied on professional clerics and scholars for their instruction for good reason. A man can open the scriptures and read for himself and come to understand what is right and what is wrong. But without learned guidance, he cannot understand the entire historical and cultural construct which is necessary to lead a community of people. That was the system of nobility which the Jew hated most and has endeavored to destroy, which has led to our condition today. But in this area, our ancient tribes naturally followed their leaders so that there would be cohesion and cooperation among their respective communities. In order for our race to survive, it needs a racist ideology which recognizes the importance of a transcendental worldview and a divine origin of law. It needs a racist ideology grounded in the origins of that same race which only a proper understanding of Christianity can provide. We call that understanding Christian identity. And I believe that I can defend everything that I believe quite effectively through the Christian scriptures and recorded ancient history. In Michael Hill's remarks, we read that in all successful movements there is a vanguard, both intellectual and physical, that must push hard against the established order by violating their taboos and sacred cows. In contrast to the corruption and depravity of ancient pagan Greece and Rome, Christianity served that purpose while it preserved those who sought shelter from the judgment of God. Today, Christian identity is that vanguard, defying the lies of the enemies of Christ, which have now deceived the whole world. violating the taboos and sacred cows which have been imposed on our people by the infiltrators who have poisoned our religious and academic institutions. And by rebuking the devils who would destroy Christendom and all white nations everywhere. Christian identity is the only faith which seeks to fully preserve our race, our heritage, and our history, as well as to uphold our traditional Christian morals and values. Then going one step further, we also understand those endeavors as being essential to sound Christian doctrine. Finally, Christianity is not found in one's mouth. All of the denominations have Christ on their lips, and none of them are truly Christians. Rather, Christianity 
is found in one's actions. The man who spends his life and is willing to expend his resources for the good of his own kindred. That man is the ideal Christian even if he never professes Christ with his lips. The Christian profession which Paul encouraged was a profession to this very thing, a profession of actions and not mere words. Because in Paul's world, that meant a departure from the perversions of the pagans and an acceptance of the laws of our God. The true Christian faith is a belief that God keeps his promises and that his people remain in his favor when they obey his commandments. That is how Paul of Tarsus explained the Christian faith throughout his epistles. Christ had said in John chapter 14, If you love me, keep my commandments. Then in John chapter 15, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love no man has than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. In another place, referring to that same thing, he urged those who would follow him to follow that example, where he said, Take up thy cross and follow me. The moral laws of God and a love for our kindred, that is all we need to be ideal Christians. All of the rituals and ecclesiastical requirements were added much later by the professional priesthood in order to control the people, to regulate their faith, and to justify their own existence and claims of authority. They became superficial replacements for true Christianity. But none of them are actually Christian. Practically every epistle of Paul, of Paul of Tarsus refutes the modern priesthoods and the ecclesiastical, or I should say, liturgical requirements of the modern churches. When early Christians heard the truth of the gospel, they realized that they had to separate themselves from the establishments of the organized religions of their time. They didn't tarry in the Greco-Roman synagogues and temples and schools of pagan philosophy hoping to hear glimpses of truth, or hoping that their teachers would eventually awaken to truth. Instead, they challenged those establishments to repent of their errors and come to Christ. When that failed, they fled those establishments and formed their own Christian assemblies, building their fellowship in a communion which was founded strictly upon the basic Christian principles which we have just described. Early Christians were persecuted because they also fled the pagan ways of the world, the bread and circuses and debauchery and the worship of beasts and emperors. But through perseverance, they ultimately prevailed.
Southern nationalists and nationalists everywhere must imitate them if their nationalism is to survive the wider and corrupted world. The time to build such independent and identity-minded churches is now. If your church life does not reflect your nationalist worldview, then you are either a cuck or for some other strange reason you are attempting to serve two masters. Only an identity-minded church, which is what the Bible really teaches, can preserve our white race and our white cultures. Southern nationalists will only become a powerful force once their church life, their political objectives, and their faith are all unified in one worldview and one pattern of behavior. Otherwise, they are only hobbyists playing at nationalism. Southern nationalists can work successfully with others elsewhere only when they have similar racial composition, beliefs, principles, and objectives and so long as they retain their own regional and cultural identity. But they should reject all groups or peoples with alien cultures, beliefs, and ethnic identities. If you understand your own religion to be valid, by necessity you must reject all other religions lest you be guilty of idolatry. The same Christ who said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, had also said, No man cometh to the Father but by me. Once it is understood that the sheep were lost some over 15 centuries, and others up to seven centuries before those words were spoken, and that our race represents those sheep, it can be understood that Christ himself invalidates all other races and all other religions. Additionally, there are so-called nationalists, even southern nationalists, who have accepted alien philosophies as a faith. So we have Hindus and Buddhists among our ranks. While it can be ascertained that Hinduism and Buddhism have elements of ancient white cultures in their backgrounds, why should a white man share a belief system that is professed almost exclusively by alien races? How does he know that that belief system was held intact and original by those alien races? How does he profess such a belief system while his own ancestors for 80 generations never knew that system? That man is also an idolater and a cuckold for the devil, giving legitimacy to the beliefs of devils. How could a white man accept the faith of three billion devils as his own? These are our only substantial and viable 
National Racial and Spiritual Survival Tools. But along with these tools, there must be a pride of profession. One cannot cower to the world and expect to overcome the world. One must stand bravely, even when opposed by the whole world, in thick or thin, in life or death, and only in that will there be victory. For the Christian, the city of God is described in the revelation of Jesus Christ, and it is a bright and ideal future which we can all look forward to, but which we must all strive to attain. There is only one race of people in that city, and if you are not one of the twelve tribes bearing its expectation, if you are not of one of those twelve tribes, you will never be allowed admission through its gates. And all of this is only the beginning of understanding. Once a group, a movement, a community, or an insurgency comes to the point where all of its members share a common set of core principles, fundamental beliefs, and outcome expectations. Only then can those members look to the future and move towards a common objective harmoniously, because they will have shared expectations and a common hope once that objective is achieved. The Christian promises this, once we share all these other things, we cannot fail in our endeavors so long as we stay on this course. The world can crumble around us, but we have an assurance of surviving the world. Working towards this common objective, by faith we devote ourselves to it. A 10% tithe will not be enough to bring us victory. Outsiders of our own race, who have allegiance to the empire and its institutions, must be looked upon as enemies even if they also must be seen as potential recruits to our cause. They must be looked upon as enemies because they function in a manner which is contrary to our survival. They must be looked upon as recruits even if we will never win them over to our cause until they too become disenchanted with the world. But as for those who are within the insurgent or nationalist community, who have accepted the things which are expressed here, every member of the body of Christ must completely devote himself to every other member and therefore doors and wallets must, only be, must, must always be opened to help brothers in need. But on the other hand, every man must be willing to work so that he may be a giver and not merely a receiver. Furthermore, sin cannot be accepted, and brothers stepping out of line, causing subversion or making spectacles of themselves, must be quickly corrected, and if they will not accept correction, they must be separated. If we are serious about ourselves, 
that engagement with the sins of the world must be terminated. Movies, <coughs> sports, television, all of these must all be replaced by activities which advance the cause of our nationalism. Money spent on any of these worldly things is given over to the enemy. Anyone who spends money on worldly entertainment, such as professional sporting events, college sporting events, movies, or television, is giving money to the enemy. Anyone who gives money to a Judeo-Christian denominational church is giving it to the enemy. Extra income must be devoted exclusively to the cause. Tithes should be made to the movement or to those within the movement who are in need of them. But tithes may be in time devoted to a task or in services rendered rather than merely in money. There is no cause. There is no insurgency. There is no nationalist swelling which has ever succeeded without great personal sacrifice of one sort or another. The Christian understands that his reward is not on earth but in heaven. Faith dictates that the heavenly reward is a tangible reward which lasts forever and not a temporal reward in this world which can only suffer decay or which can be lost or confiscated. Having this understanding, we should seek all the more to dedicate ourselves to our brethren, which is the only way that we may please our God. Having this understanding and persisting in this common faith, we shall not be defeated. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and never to God, to niggers or Jews. Squat monsters, chinkolators, street shitters, or any other two-legged vermin. Thank you for listening.